What up, Somethings Podcast, Rob, once again back in the house. For me, there's nothing more unpredictable and potentially fun and hilarious than our wheel episodes. And even on top of that, they're even more fun when we can have a guest join us. Originally airing August 16th, 2022, my pick for best wheel episode of 2022 was Elevator Pitch Disaster Movie with our good friend, author Crystal Storm. Okay, here we go. Something, something. Okay, here we go. Hey, everybody. I'm James Hatton. Podcast Rob. And it's time for Something in Review. In Review! <laughs> Telephone. You gonna, was that... You gonna get that? Was it... What? That wasn't... It's not... I don't... I don't have a house phone. Yeah, well, I clearly don't. Oh, maybe... I mean, it's creepy, but I think I see what it's doing. What is it doing? What What's the movie we're reviewing today? Oh, you're right. You're right. We're reviewing. I was going to try and make Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. No, that's not it. We are doing The Black Phone. Yes. Very good. The Black Phone, which I didn't know until the credits rolled that it was a Joe Hill jam. Uh... Yes, it was adapted from, uh, they did change, uh, a, a, I'll say a fair amount of stuff. Um, oh, really? Okay. But it was, yeah, yeah, it was uh, originally a Joe Hill story. I, there is slight concern the minute I found out it was a Joe Hill story because Joe Hill, I love, and his series uh, that they've done like Nosferatu and Lock and Key, love. But the one short story they've already adapted uh, in the tall grass, I dis- I thought it was horrible. I gotcha. was upset when I found out it was Joe Hill. So I was like, if this is the next in his, like, I'm going to do some of my short stories. Uh, maybe that's like the mirror opposite of his father in that his father makes great short stories, but can't stick the landing on the big pieces. Gotcha. Uh, but I was pleasantly surprised. I really enjoyed Black Phone. What about you? I did, too. Like, I knew, like, the movie tagline, basically, about it was as much as I knew. Um, And it was getting mostly pretty positive reviews. Yeah. um, Either on social media or from, like, friends of mine that I had known who had seen it. So uh, it actually ended up on the Peacock, which I have. So I'm like, cool, I'll check this out. And I got to say, horror isn't usually my jam but this wasn't even I wouldn't call it horror as much as it's it was more psychological horror or more like thriller yeah. 
thriller uh, than it I was it definitely a thriller. Yeah, than it was like horror. Because when I think horror, I think you know, uh, Friday the Thirteenth, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Streets, you know, uh, stuff like that. Um, and that's not typically my jam, but this was this was to me surprisingly good. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I would agree. It is less horror and more thriller, but I, you know, those genres sort of mix and match, especially yeah, yeah, when you're yeah. talking about like a a kidnapper in a, a small '80s town. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I went in knowing nothing, and I walked away fi- being like super satisfied with what we got. Um, I think there is a big trend in, and, and it's not like a current trend. It's a it's a long time horror trend to tell stories where at the end the claw comes out of the sand to grab the mask, or the oh, but wait, we look at the house and there's still somebody in the window. Or, you know, there's they can't help themselves. Right. From leaving an ending be fucking ending. It's ambiguous. There's always room for a sequel. Let's get a franchise going. Right. I that's what I liked about this. When we got to the ending, it the ended. Movie said good. There you go. Did yeah. you enjoy that? Because we're leaving now. I mean I, but if I look back at other Stephen King books that have or stories that have been turned into movies. Um, and granted, like, I'm not a, a Stephen King ophile, um, but like trucks, which turned into maximum overdrive, wasn't set up for any sort of sequel. No, you're right. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a fair amount of stuff that he's done that hasn't been, uh, filmed that way or, or story told that way that, Hey, we're going to leave that, that little gotcha at the end moment for, you know, to potentially make a franchise out of it. Um, but but most horror movies, yes, I 100% yeah. agree they do that. And I'm sure part of it now is it, we, because it came from Bloomhouse, home of all things horror. Yeah. Um, I, I always am concerned that, you know, next summer, Black Phone 6, the blackest of phones. None more <sighs> black. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know what, though? I don't necessarily see that from... Uh, from Blumhouse, to be honest. Um, I think they kind of are finding a niche in having a company that makes awesome one-shot movies. Because if they can, if they can keep ringing that bell, so to speak, uh, then people are going to go, oh, this is a Blumhouse movie? I'm going to go see it. And that's you know what I mean? Like, I it mean, doesn't have to be, a, it doesn't have to be a franchise. Um, it's kind of what I had wished on a tangent that DC did after the utter failure of uh, Green Lantern, that instead of trying to make this huge overarching uh, connected universe, that they just leaned heavy into like one shot stories and did like a live action Batman Re- or uh, Superman Red Sun or a live sure. action, you know, uh, Gotham by Gaslight, or something like that, and lean on the one-shots because it was the polar opposite of what Marvel was trying to do. So instead of nine years into the game, let's try to play catch-up in four months, just lean into something different. And since, like you said, so many horror movies seem to be leaning towards the, hey, let's see if we can build a franchise out of this and become the next Saw or the next, you know, Halloween um, just say, no, let's just tell really good one shot stories and people will still keep coming back because the movies are good as opposed to doing one good movie, then an okay sequel. And then everything else just becomes shit. Yeah. The next, uh, Michael Myers is art. The clown 
if you've not seen Terrifier, you won't see Terrifier. But for those of you, if you've not seen Terrifier, go see Terrifier. Um, but no, your point is 100% correct. That to stand on your Warner Brothers moment, um, WB and DC Comics have made nearly no smart decisions. Like, they make a, couple, a good movie here and there, no doubt. But you are... If you go look at their animated selection on uh, HBO Max, or you'll see that like, and if you're gonna go that. look, if you're gonna go look at it on HBO Max, make it quick. <laughs> um, but like, that's exactly what they did. There is a Gotham by a Gaslight. There is a uh, Young Justice. There is there's all of these great single bite stories, and some of them when you watch it, they show you Bruce Wayne's parents dying, and some of them they show Pa Kent carrying the baby out of the cornfield. And the next time they do it, you don't feel bad about it because it's a new animation style. They're going to put a new spin on it or a new take. I think I've seen the JLA form in six different ways because there's been that many year one stories. Yep. Anyway, back to the black phone. Um, Would like to address the casting in this one. Well, maybe we should discuss like the the basic premise. Just the a small village in the it's 80s, right? It's early 80s. 70s. 70s. 70s, Yep. Um. There is a kidnapper on the loose. And and, and just to clarify, by village, it's northern Denver. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a, a Denver village. suburb. It's very villagey. When you um, say village, it, it I, I get right. I get right. images of fucking M. Night Shyamalan when you say the village. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Privy Lord, come to my, to my quick V stop. Uh the movie follows along with a brother, sister, and his friends and their father um, and eventually our main character, Finney kidnapped. And it's the tale of him in the basement of, yeah, there has been a, there has been a rash of, of kid kidnappings um, in this town, in this neighborhood. Um, And Finney and his sister, uh, Gwen, they, they know these people. Because it's, it's a small neighborhood, so when a kid gets taken, everybody knows who the kid is. Um, so there's a lot of that that's been going around. And then we yeah. kind of find out that uh, the father, uh, Finney and Gwen's father, is a very, very... Do- Dr. Faraday. Yeah, he's a very troubled man. Uh, he's had some, some, some bad things go wrong in his life. Uh, the wife is no longer around because the wife was having visions and, and seeing things and she couldn't differentiate between uh, real and not real. And now the daughter, Gwen, is starting to see visions about these kids who have been kidnapped. And the father is very much afraid that she's going down the same path that the mother did. Um, but it becomes gonna, very important when Finn gets yeah. taken. She's going to go cuckoo bananas because she's got what they never say, but I think we all thought is The Shining. Yes. Yeah. So to address the, the, the family dynamic, because the, the primary casting is this family. There's friends involved that we'll get to briefly. Um, but the what I thought was one of the amazingly good parts about this movie was, number one, I believe they were all related. They looked similar. They had similar mannerisms. They acted the same. Um the father, who I jokingly is from Lost, he played Faraday, uh, looks nothing like he did in Lost. He's, you know, bedraggled and he's got a long, like, biker beard. 
he's playing an angry, just loafing drunk um, with all of the anger that entails. And it's fairly brutal, won't lie. But I felt those two kids and he acted their asses off in this film. There's a couple of the other actors that I was like, it's clearly their first role or it's clearly, you know, they're kids. So you you give them a little leeway. But um, for a movie that stands on the shoulders of one 12-year-old, 14-year-old kid, he, he did really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mason Thames played uh, Finney. Yeah. And he literally has been in... Nothing. Wow. Uh, well, 2017, he was in a short. Uh, 2019, he was in a TV series that he was in, it looks like, three episodes in. Uh, he was in an episode of uh, Evil, like as in Evil Knievel, in 2020. And then everything else is just like stuff that he's been working on now. But this seems to yeah. be like his first big deal. Yeah. Is I mean, he may be a theater movie. kid, but uh, they very well might have grabbed from theater. But yeah, he and the whole family kill it, uh, which leads to our other main role uh, Ethan Hunt, Ethan Hawke, rather, not Ethan Hunt, Jesus. Ethan Hawke plays the kidnapper. They list him in the credits as the grabber. And again, I like Ethan Hawke. I think he is a fantastic actor in the right roles. Um, love Gattaca. But he was brilliant in all of the things, and with the family too. What this movie didn't say. Said tons. Oh yeah. Um, with the with the sister, they never and the mom, they never really address what they have, but you know in the back of your head what they're talking about. Yep. Um, they never show why the well they they do get a little deeper into why the father drinks, um, but all of it is very spoken around. Even so much as why the grabber's the grabber, and I it's one of I think the most major plot points of the movie that isn't addressed is it's never really you're never told you never see there's never any sort of uh, contextualization around what he's going to do to these kids right it's just bad yeah like they never really so the grabber says he's a magician is he really a magician or is that just what he tells kids you know is is, is he the ice cream man and hey come get candy out of my van kind of thing like, we don't know. We have no idea uh, about who this guy is, what motivates him, where he gets this, you know, this concept from. It's just accepted in the uh, context of the movie. And since everybody in the movie just accepts it and goes on, like, none of the cops ever be like, well, who, where did this guy come from? Or what does he do as a, you know, like, you as the viewer don't give a shit because... Yeah. It's not needed. All we know is that the dude drives a van. We know what the van looks like. I was getting very uh, Jeepers Creepers kind of feels. Not necessarily because the van looked like that. But Mm -hmm. you'd see the kid pedaling his bike, la la la, down the middle of the street. And then all of a sudden, like, like the Jaws music would almost kick in. And the van just like, onto the street behind him. And you're just like, oh, fuck. (laughs) It had that kind of feel to it. And... None of his uh, tools of the trade are, they don't really make sense combined together, but 
they're his, and again, they don't tell you why. He's got a van, he uses black balloons to get the kids into the back of the truck, a la Silence of the Lambs. Um, he wears sort of a magician's thing, and he those masks. And this was one of the, the last point I'll make about him specifically, is every image and shot of him is a different mask that seems to be based on his moods. These little, these like Oni masks that are fucking gorgeous. And to no surprise, I, I do believe Tom Savini made them. Yep, absolutely. Which I thought was awesome. Yeah, it's, so the top part of the mask is one piece, and then there's three different bottom parts. There's the one that we kind of first see him in that has no mouth at all, and then there's the one that has the big kind of like Joker grin on it, and then there's another one that has like the very serious frown on it that he puts on at certain points. But yeah, like you never see... Ethan Hawke's face pretty much the entire movie. Even at the end when the mask is removed, he like freaks out and covers his face up. So I don't really think that there was ever a good shot of his face of who he was. Let me think about that. Hmm. I'd have to go rewatch it to, to see whether they actually ever, we see his face as the, the viewer. Cause I don't, I don't, I don't believe we do. Thing. Yeah. Cause he, I think the once or twice he's not wearing, he like puts his hand over his mouth. So it's, so there's always something. Yeah. yeah. Very well might be right. I think it might just taking it for granted. I think the most Ethan Hawk looks like, I think the most we ever see is he wears the smile part of the mask at one point without the top part. So you see like the top half of Ethan Hawk's head, mm -hmm. um, but you never really get to see his whole face, which again, irrelevant like we don't need to see his whole face because the character has already been established as these fucking masks um so the bulk of the film is finney in this underground concrete jungle this concrete basement um he's got a window there's a bathroom and a phone on the wall and that is our last sort of big thingy to tie this all together is that this phone um there's discussion between him and the grabber about whether it's going to ring or whether he hears it ringing or why it's there the grabber doesn't want him to touch it and we go on for the most of the movie a journey of all of the other kids that he's captured because they're calling him they're calling finney on the ghost phone and they won't leave him alone and we get little snippets of their backgrounds and little snippets of their story and the, their tropes we'll call them you know their archetypes he's the he's the bully he's the um tough he's the paper delivery boy um and they each give finney their own way that they tried to escape um and i was wondering like it <clears throat> i thought somewhere in the middle that it felt like padding like are they just padding this out so we can get to the the suspense part with the sister but no the movie sort of subverted that expectation yeah, I agree. It felt like, and again, this is this is kind of a thing where if the movie doesn't care to dive into it, then we shouldn't care about it as an audience. Um, they go through the whole thing of, oh yeah, that phone's never worked. He looks at the phone wires, that the phone wires are cut, it's not connected to anything, Oh, okay, weird. Drops the wires, and then the phone rings. And it's never like, like maybe for two minutes, there's, you know, he like kind of backs away from the phone and he freaks out. But then he, he answers it and he's like, hello? Now every time the phone rings, he's just like, hello, who's there? 
Like, at no point are you just like, why is this fucking phone still ringing? I don't understand. Like, he never tried to kick it off the wall or rip it off the wall. I like, stop ringing, smash it to pieces. It's yeah. just like, it just became, oh, it's a phone. It's a phone that talks to the dead kids that this guy's apparently killed. Okay. No why, no how, no, no what's going on. Doesn't matter. It's a phone that talks to dead people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're giving him hints on how he should try to escape. Um, each one had their method. Each one failed for obvious reasons. These are the dead ghosts. But all of that culminates as the movie goes on uh, to where Finney's able to do it his way. And it involves taking each, taking a lesson from each kid, whether this one taught him how to punch or this one um, showed him how to get to the window or etc. It's almost like a Rube. I thought it was like a Rube Goldberg machine, like how it all comes together. Right. Um, in that they lay out all the pieces of the of the machine and then they're all put into play. But legitimately, until that moment when he's like taking the ditch and hiding in the fridge and all that. Um, until that moment where all the pieces line up, I didn't see it coming. And I think that was my favorite part. I, I was like, what is he going to use to? Oh, montage. And we see all of this sort of form into one big grandmaster plan. Yeah. Yeah, it was very well, it was very well done. And it was, like, the sense I got was that not only were the kids trying to make sure that Finney didn't make the same mistakes they did, but that he tried to use what they had tried in a way that was his own. Because obviously, you know, the first kid's like, oh yeah, there's a window up there. Cool. But he wasn't able to get out the window. And you know what? Neither was fucking Finney able to get out the window. Yeah. You know, like he tried everything that they tried and failed and yet still failed. But because they got to the point where they explained to him about playing the game, you know, where don't play, don't be the bad kid where he has to come down and punish you now. Like that's what he's waiting for. He was able to kind of come up with his own way where he used all of the other previous failures in, like you said, this this awesome Rube Goldbergian kind of thing. Because when that whole thing went down, I got to tell you, I was like, eyes wide, mouth agape, like, huh? Holy fuck, dude! Like, it was... Yeah. Because it was all the other pieces that had failed, but he took all the failed pieces and built an entirely different thing out of them. It was really well done. That end part was really cool. Um, and there's a major subplot about the house uh, that the grabber's using and the, the young girl, his sister, Gwen, um, can see the house and brings the cops there and it's not the house. And oh, that's just a coked up guy who all ties in. Um, I think if there was one flaw in it, it's that the coked out brother didn't recognize something. Right. You've never, you've never asked your brother about his weird Oni masks. He comes upstairs wearing. Yeah, exactly. Or, or that you have a fucking basement. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a meat locker. It's got like a meat locker door on it. So, but that's sort of the, if his brother's the coked out weirdo. So you kind of go, all right, fine. (laughs) Right. I mean, if uh, if we haven't ruined it for you and you haven't seen it, this was probably a bad episode to listen to, but you should go see it. It is 
Um, it was very good. I was surprised to learn that it was supposed to be released earlier. But uh, they held it back because the test audiences loved it so much. They were like, wait, we might have something bigger on our hands. Let's hold off till, till we have a good moment for release. Um, so well, wait until summer. There were, there were also uh, things that they did kind of change about it, too, because of the test audiences. Um, and they also really? delayed it because uh, one of the... I'm trying to read through it here. Uh, C. Robert Cargill who did the, uh, I'm sorry, Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill did the adaptation of it, uh, but Derrickson was working on Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, so Cargill promised to postpone the project until Derrickson was done with his uh, Disney commitment and done with Marvel Studios, so that's another reason why it got pushed back. He also did Snowpiercer. Sorry, I'm just looking at what he's done. Yeah, yeah. He also did Into the Dark, which is cool. If um, I, I don't know whether you do Hulu, but again, you don't really do horror. There's a series of uh, Hulu horror called Into the Dark. Some are artsy, some are funny, some are shitty. <laughs> There's right. a lot of them. Anyway. It had a I, go ahead. budget of 16 to 18 million. It's made 156 million at the box office. Because this is one of those weird ones where... It was released in the movies and then very shortly after released on streaming. And then like, wasn't it on Netflix first? And then it went, but like for a very short period of time and then it went to Peacock. Cause I know it didn't start on Peacock. Yeah. I couldn't tell you where it started. I just know that after everybody started talking about it, it was somewhere that I watch movies. <laughs> uh, so it was released on video on demand on the 14th of July and then hit Peacock on August 14th. 156 million for a what I will almost call an indie level horror movie on a budget of 15. That's a hell of a return. Yeah. I didn't even know $156 worth of people went to see movies. So uh, it was projected to do 15 to 20 million on just over 3,000 theaters on its opening weekend. It made ten million on its first day, and then twenty three point six million in its first three days. Uh, to, for a thirty five point eight million global debut that first weekend. To put that in perspective, uh, Doctor Strange cost two hundred million, and box office nine hundred and fifty five, which you know, not so shabby. But like, Black Phone had a much better percentage. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Of return. Uh, it is nominated for the Hollywood Critics Association Mid-Season Film Awards for Best Horror. Very specific time frame. Horror movies that came out on a Friday yeah. when you ate corned beef for dinner. So I did find this website that was, uh, it's FSR, Film School Rejects, um, that has an article called 31 Things We Learned from the Black Phone Commentary. Oh, please. Um... Some of it is very bizarre. Okay. All right. So, like, Derrickson grew up in North Denver during the 70s, so he wanted to put those kind of personal touches in the film. Uh, apparently, his childhood was fraught with violence, um, but there was also a societal wave because of Ted Bundy's trip through Colorado, 
uh, Derrickson's next door neighbor had gotten murdered and a phone call that had him briefly talking with one of the Manson family. Huh. And then, like, you see that later on down, down the list, uh, apparently he was asked, albeit not pressured, if he would cut the scene of Gwen getting punished by her father with the belt. But he didn't, and his response was, it's not even illegal what he's doing. Oof. And I think, I think the comment probably should have been, it wasn't really illegal at the time. Yeah. Like, in the 70s, it was just punishing your kid. Now, if you do, yeah, yeah. now if you do that, you probably get dragged out in cuffs. Um, and, and then somebody else asked him uh, if he feels bad or critical about using kids in horror movies. What? Um, I'm trying to find. Well, like, does he... Oh, he asked a lot about putting kids in horror films with the suggestion that it might be detrimental to the young actors. And his response is, no, it's like Halloween. Halloween's a kid's holiday. They love dressing up and touching on dark things and death and mayhem. And I'm like, this is from a guy that had this going on, apparently, in his... Yeah. In his childhood, not at all a chance that that might have affected him. He, uh, his, uh, his invitation to the sleepover has been rescinded. Yeah, his perspective on things might be a bit skewed. But also, what a bonehead question. Do you think using kids in horror movies dot 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 stop it? They're actors. It's a job. I mean... Unless... Unless it's Stanley Kubrick, and then they, they're probably traumatized. I get I get where you're coming from. Yes, they they're this is what they're they're getting into. This is kind of what they sign on to. I'm sure it's not just them making their decisions. Their parents will probably sign off on and everything too. But I don't necessarily think it's an invalid question. I think it's I think my my reluctance to the question is just how far it's in the 2020s. You know, kids have been in horror movies since there were horror movies. From Exorcist on down, it just feels it feels like a you could have asked something else. I don't know. I know I also I mean, don't think this is the first time this question has ever been asked. No, that's true. You know, that's, it's, it has true. been asked, I'm sure. Every time there's Every time I see a movie that has really gory stuff going on and there's a kid in the scene or um, like amazingly adult scenarios or sexual scenarios, not with the children, of course, but I'm saying with them in the same scene or even just like really severe language. I'll just be like, that's that's a bold choice, I think. Having that having that seven year old call that guy you know cocksucking motherfucker. You're just like oh, that's that's a little bold. I understand they're actors, but still. So I can right. kind of Not get the him. perspective of where the question came from. Um, but this of all movies, I don't think is the worst offender. No, this this is a. I think. A kid walking away from being in like the ice storm would have more questions, and that movie's just oh, about yeah. a key party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think now the last maybe... time a kid, oh, um, just real quick, I was gonna say, I think the last time a kid in a film made me like <gasps> really was like Chloe Grace Moritz in Kick Ass. Yeah, but please, 
Now, I would say it would probably be more detrimental to let the kids watch the movie yes. than to have filmed the movie. Because when you're filming it, it's getting filmed out of order. You're doing specific scenes here and there. And then, you know, you're seen and then it's done. Um, but yeah, maybe it wouldn't be the best to, you know, have kids watch a movie about a kidnapper kidnapping kids and killing kids. Probably not the best thing. But when you break it down into those pieces and the way it's filmed, yeah, probably, like I said, this is far from the worst offender that has ever been out there. You get a gold star for alliteration. As a note. Okay. Appreciate that. Um, in So to drag this all the way back to the very beginning of the episode, looking at the uh, wiki real quick. In June 20, uh, 2022, Derrickson said that while Hill was protective of his story, the author had pitched him a wonderful idea for a sequel and was open to directing based on the iconic imagery of the grabber's masks. So somebody's already smelling franchise. I mean, it's <sighs> if they went that way, if they tried mm-hmm. to do a sequel to this, I feel it would have to be like mid to late 80s and, you know, some of these uh, news hounds or or because we can't really call them internet sleuths because they didn't really have them at that time. Um, but somebody who followed along and knows all the gory details of this case and has clippings of it posted up on their, you know, on their wall comes across the mask, you know, and it becomes a copycat kind of thing. Sure. Um, I think that's really the only way that you could do any sort of a sequel with this. And I think that's probably the best version of what could be in my head because everything else I thought of was like the totemic power of the evil within the masks. And that's a horrible shit idea. (laughs) (laughs) And this is why I have won two of the elevator pitch episodes and you have not. So, folks out there, what did you think of The Black Phone? Did you enjoy it? Um, What are some of the other horror movies we may have missed? Rob, where can they tell us this? You can go to somethingcast.com, which is the repository of all things something. It has all of the buttons and widgets and doodads and places where you can find us on the social media, places like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and all the places you can email us over at Gmail and all the different podcatcher kind of places you can listen to us on. Uh, Go over to somethingcast.com. Everything you need to know about us is there and one last thing that just sprung to mind so we have this is a this is a brilliant idea for an elevator pitch episode uh but now that i'm saying it we probably can't do it because that's not the way that fucking show works but anyway poltergeist made tv scary black phone telephones uh the ring vcr tapes we have to come up with a horror movie based on an inanimate household object Okay. Coming next summer. I see, what you, I see what you did there. Yeah. I like it. Anyway. Thank you all for joining us. We will see you guys next time. Wait, what would yours be? Uh, my, first, my first thought is toaster. I want, a, I want a haunted toaster. I mean, I would probably go, I'd probably go speakers. Speakers are good. You got the brown note. <laughs> I'm James Hatton. I'm Podcast Rob. See you guys next time. Later. Later.
something, 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 something. Okay, here we go.